What is the gospel? What is the kingdom of God? I wonder if you've ever had something that you needed to explain some to someone, tried to explain to someone that it needed more than just a, a verbal explanation. Maybe there, there's so much kind of nuance involved that just explaining it could easily create uh, confusion. You know, this is the idea behind internships in jobs or uh, mentoring. It, the idea is that you, no one explain to you what they do or their profession. You need to follow them. You need to see what they do. And only in watching it done can you really grasp it. Um, on a much simpler level, uh, I, I really enjoy making coffee for people. And I probably too, uh, am too obsessed with it, the, the particulars. Of it. But I don't feel like I could just tell you how to make coffee the way I do. I feel like I would really need to mentor you into it. You know, it's, it's all about grinding it just a little bit finer so that you can get it to drip a little bit slower and be just a little bit stronger. We lived in South Louisiana for a while, and I soon found out that if you asked a Cajun for a recipe, you better be ready just to expect, you have to expect, there is no exact recipe. It's a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and then you smell it, taste it, and you know, and if it's not just right, you might have to throw it all out, or it might can be adjusted, but it's something that needs to, you need to be, see it, see how it's done. Now, these might be kind of trivial issues, but... I think this is a bit what it was like with the kingdom and with Jesus explaining the gospel. You see, Mark begins his gospel with this phrase, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then in verses 14 through 15, part of our passage for today, he summarizes the entire message of Jesus. Now, in some of your Bibles, you'll see that verses 14 through 15 are separated from verses 16 through 20. What they're trying to do, this wasn't in the original manuscripts or anything, but what they're trying to do is tell you that this is a summary of everything that Jesus would say and do. The summary of his ministry is, the summary of his proclamation is, that he came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is a vague, a summary of what Jesus said. But in order to get a really good idea of what the gospel and the kingdom of God really are, you have to read the rest of the gospel. Mark will take the rest of his gospel to explain it. If it was that simple, then all the four gospels wouldn't be more than, you know, as many chapters as they are. The shortest one being 14 chapters. We need to see it. You know, the the gospel, it had meanings in this culture that had to be reoriented. A Jew would immediately, when they heard this idea of good news, they would have flashbacks to Isaiah, like the passage that you heard just that Sam read for us, Isaiah 52. The good news was that one day God would make everything right in the world. Evil would be dealt with, conquered even. The political systems that ruled them with this malice and injustice would be destroyed. The good news, the gospel, was that God would be king and his people would live with him in all creation and in peace, just as Adam and Eve did in the garden. But, you know, the Romans also had an idea of what gospel was. 
They used this word for their benefit. It was when a new emperor, a Caesar, ascended to the throne and and used on his birthday. It carried with it this idea that the emperor would preserve peace and prosperity throughout the Roman Empire. What the Jews ascribed to God, the Romans ascribed to Caesar. In the Bible, though... The gospel is is the good news about God's kingdom. It's not just personal salvation, though that's part of it. It is about God's reign over the entire world. It's it's Old Testament idea that God is over the entire earth. That's what Sam summed up in those that last phrase. Say to Zion, your God reigns. That is God's kingdom. God is coming to the earth. This is the summary of Jesus' message. God is coming to the earth to retain his rightful rule. The earth that he created and intended for good. He's making it all right. But already in this section of Mark, there are surprises about God's Things that weren't expected. Indications that his kingdom will be altogether different from the world or even from what the Jews, God's people, had expected. They expected God would just overthrow the Romans with the sword. They would do the opposite. Well, they would do what the Romans had done to them. In fact, there were some who were trying to play that game already. But right before Mark speaks of Jesus, he alludes to John the Baptist. Did you see that? It was just kind of this throwaway comment. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. John was the one who prophesied about Jesus, even baptized Jesus. He'd been given over. Now, anybody who's reading Mark's gospel or hearing this knows exactly what happened to John the Baptist. This was well known in this day. Josephus, a Jewish historian, writes about it in his works. They knew that John was handed over because he said the wrong things about Herod's marriage. And they knew that John's end was that he was beheaded. What kind of gospel is this? Where the people associated with it are arrested and beheaded? How does that kind of kingdom gain any ground when the kingdoms of the world appear so much stronger? We're being introduced to a really unique kind of kingdom. A unique kind of gospel. Moreover, the way to join in on this kingdom isn't to take up arms, but it's the surprising qualities of repentance and faith. The sacrifice, not just of your body, though that might be part of it, but of your mind, your heart, of everything that you are. It's an existential crisis. Who am I and what am I supposed to be and do? The idea of a kingdom, this kind of kingdom, it's mind-boggling. The risks are great. And this kind of kingdom can only be true if the world is really being turned upside down. This isn't a God, clearly, whose kingdom is completely safe, as C.S. Lewis would say. But surely it's good. If it's true, such a kingdom and such beauty are possible. That the world could be turned upside down. That all of the ways of the world could be proven wrong. And that God is making an end to the evil and injustice. And he's going to make all human relationships and all parts of creation right and good. If that's possible, how do we join in on that? How do we repent? How do we act in faith? What does it mean to respond to the gospel 
and daily life and real life. It's almost anticlimactic that Jesus proclaims his message is this huge kingdom. And then all of a sudden in verse 16 through 20, we get to four fishermen in Galilee. It's a world-shattering kingdom. It's a world-changing kingdom. And yet, immediately, he goes to four fishermen in Galilee to show us this is what it means to respond to the gospel. That's part of the point. This kingdom comes in everyday life. To respond to the gospel, I want to just look at two ways that these, these guys, this story tells us how we respond to this gospel. And the first way is we have to commit ourselves and to community, to Jesus and to community. And I hope that how big it is and yet how small these things seem, I hope this comes together for us, that these things are huge. In fact, it's almost harder to commit ourselves to these things, these things than it would be to take up arms, to rebel against the current overlords and to do it in our own way. You know, Mark sets up the story in such a way that we're supposed to ask questions. Only Jesus. He comes to these men, and it's as if he's never met them. That's, that's how it sounds. It's so abrupt. He comes to them and, and calls their names and tells them to follow him. Follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Goes a little bit further. Seems James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. They're in their boat, mending nets, preparing them for the day of work. And he calls them. They immediately leave their nets and follow Jesus. Mark's warning us to ask questions. Have these people never met? What's going on here? Who, what kind of situation is this in which someone can just go to these men who are doing their daily work, their daily vocation? By the way, people in Galilee who had a fishing business, which that's what this was. It wasn't a hobby. This business would have gone back for centuries in their family. Their family would have been rooted in Galilee for many, many generations and so this is, it's not just some small thing. And so Mark wants us to see that only Jesus, only this person has this persuasive authority to call people and they follow him. They leave everything and they follow him. But the other authority Jesus has is to change people. Look in verse 17. He says, follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. You see, they'll give themselves over to Jesus, they'll follow him, and he'll shape them into something entirely different. You know, it doesn't sound like a big deal, but this make you into something. It's creational language. It's something only God can do. He makes something something out of nothing. He makes something different. It's like to build something or to form something. This is what Jesus does in discipleship. People give themselves over to Jesus and he makes them into something different than what they were. A better version of their self. To be part of God's kingdom, these men, they have to change. But they can't do it without following Jesus. And it's the same for us. If we want to be part of God's kingdom, we have to give ourselves over to Jesus to be changed. I wonder, you know, when we think about all the things that are rooted in us, the things that we pick up along the way of our lives, in the families we grow up in, we think about the ways that we struggle with selfishness, the ways that we struggle with pride. I wonder if we really believe that Jesus can make us into something totally different. 
That Jesus can change the deepest of our being, our wounds, our anger, our selfishness. You know, that's the other part of the equation here. For these men to follow Jesus, the idea that Jesus can change them. This, what he wants to turn them into is something that's going to require great courage. I will make you to become fishers of men. This means they're going to bring people into God's kingdom. What do these fishermen, what experience do they have in getting people to do things? Persuading people in this kind of way. You see, it's going to take great courage. They're going to have to have faith that Jesus can't change them. There's, there's this narrative that's prominent in our culture. That can't blame people for being what they are because of what's happened to them. But it, it, we can call it a victim narrative. We should be really thankful that we live in this place, that we, we know the type of effects that abuse or that a broken home can have a person. This should help us to have compassion for each other. To, we understand where each other comes from, that there's certain things we've inherited that we're going to struggle with. But it's not good when we can justify our behavior because of what's happened to us. When we use the narrative excuse our anger our lack of self-control friend if we're if we claim to be a christian there's no reason for us to ever justify sin to justify our anger to justify a lack of self-control to respond to the gospel means we repent and we ask jesus to change us to change the deepest parts of our being the teenagers went on a retreat this weekend. If you happen to look around the room and see teenagers or Bob and Sharon Dilling dozing off this morning, um, I'm going to say it was the teenagers' fault, even if it's mine. But uh, I think they stayed up a little late. But so I want to appeal to them more this morning. Teenagers, are you trusting Jesus to to change you, to to form you into what He's created you to be? There are going to be parts of you that fight hard against God, that fight hard against the ways of Jesus. And you'll have to give yourself to Scripture. You'll have to give yourself to this community and God to help you grow into what He's created you to be. That's what these men are going to have to do. They have to, they have to leave everything and give themselves over to Jesus so that He can change them into something else. But there's also this indication here that it's not just Jesus... People, though that's most, that is primarily it. But he calls people into community so that that can help change them. He continues to grow the, commu- the kingdom through community. You know, once he calls James and John, he's called Peter and Andrew. Then he goes down the way a little bit to this other little fishing business of James and John. So there are these two sets of brothers. They're former business competitors. I don't know how competitive the fishing industry was in Galilee, but these men who used to do jobs but separately from one another are going to come together, follow Jesus, and they're going to change together. This is the beginning of the church. The beginning of a Christian community. A community God calls together to worship Him, to minister to one another and bear witness so that more people will enter the kingdom. Eugene Peterson tells this story of when he became a pastor. Before this time, he lived just in a transient way. He was going place to place for ministry. And he says, 
then, all of a sudden, it was no longer transient. This was it. A congregation, improbably named the people of God. These people, for good or ill, but these people. I often found myself preferring the company of people outside my congregation, men and women who did not follow Jesus, or worse, preferring the company of my sovereign self. But I soon found that my preferences were honored by neither Scripture nor Jesus. I didn't come to the conviction easily, but finally there was no getting around it. There can be no maturity in the spiritual life, no obedience in following Jesus, no wholeness in the Christian life, apart from an immersion and embrace of community. I am not myself by myself. Community, not the highly vaunted individualism of our culture, is the setting in which Christ's kingdom moves forward. Are you committed to community? See, from what we see in this passage, to reject community is also to reject the Jesus who forms the community. But to embrace community is to embrace Jesus and embrace Jesus' way of changing you, of forming you. To respond to the gospel, we have to commit to one another, the good and the bad. We help each other adjust to God's kingdom way, this unique and different way of living in the world by bearing sins and by bearing joys. We repent together. We believe together. In incarnation, we do this primarily through our small groups. Besides this worship gathering, all we have every week is small groups. That's where you go to pray together, to ask for help. Those are the people you go to when things in your life... Go awry. I wonder if you're taking, uh, taking advantage of the opportunities to be formed into Christ's image. But community isn't just the way that we change. It's the way we bear witness to the world. The most important contribution the church can make to building a new social order, a new kingdom, is to be itself a new social order. It's not programs. It's being together as people. Are you in community? Are you committing yourself to Jesus and the one who creates community? So we respond to the gospel by committing ourselves to Christ, committing ourselves to him and to the community that he gathers together. And then we respond to the gospel, the good news of God's kingdom, by committing ourselves to local personal ministry. Local, personal ministry. This is simply imitating how Jesus himself responded to the kingdom. This is what I was trying to highlight. It's this grand message. The kingdom of God is here. God reigns in all the world. And all of a sudden, Jesus goes straight to Galilee. His hometown. You know, I, I'm, I'm not from Harrisonburg. I'm not trying to be offensive. But if you were to create a worldwide geopolitical movement trying to change the world, and you were pretty confident that this was it, would you start in Harrisonburg? The kingdom's here. And Jesus goes to Galilee, not Jerusalem, where you would find the best religious Jewish scholars, not to Rome, where you would find the world's great tools, where you would find the most money. To support the movement, he goes to Galilee and he gets to four fishermen. In the way Mark tells the story, he wants his readers to catch the sights and sounds of a normal day in Galilee. Jesus walks alongside the sea 
Another day in the neighborhood. He spots Simon and his brother Andrew. They're throwing their net in. They're not in a boat. We know from this era what they did. They would go out into the sea, wade out a bit. They would hold these nets out that would sometimes take two people and then toss them out. And it says, this kind of throwaway comment, they were fishermen. It indicates to us that this isn't a hobby. This is what they do for their livelihood. After Jesus calls them, he goes down the sea. Simon and Andrew with him at this point. He sees James and John. They're sons of Zebedee. And they're repairing nets for the day's work. When Jesus calls them, they, they leave their father and their servants in the boat. This was a decent sized business that they had. By reading the story little about everyday life in Galilee. The town, the geography, the profession, the people, and their family ties. It's the place. And it's the people of that place. Both these things are important. The place, Galilee, is important in the context. The kingdom begins its movement in Galilee rather than these larger places. Mark narrates the dawn of the kingdom. At the margins of the world. I think this is one of the brilliant things about Tolkien's novel, The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Isn't it ironic that this Hobbit creature becomes a world changer for that Middle Earth? And that four fishermen become the people who join in the kingdom that will spread across the world. Jesus subverts the idols of our world. He goes to Galilee. The the idea that changing the world happens when you're closest to the seats of power. When you're closest to wealth or to those with the highest IQ. He brings dignity to every area on earth. When it's God's kingdom we're talking about, every area, every place matters. From Jesus we see that the insignificance of a place, like Galilee, doesn't mean it holds less potential for gospel kingdom ministry. Within each place, there are people who need to know the good news of God's kingdom, who need to know of the message of God's kindness, of His grace. So Jesus' ministry is local. It's embedded in a community, and it's personal. He goes to individuals, people He knows by name. You know, this is why it's important. Carnation plants churches in a town like Elkton and in other small towns throughout the Shenandoah Valley. Because a church, the people in a church need to know each other. And not only each other, but they need to know people in their community. They need to know the businesses. Did you notice where Jesus meets these men? It's in their vocational space. Turf. He moves up close to them. How might the kingdom of God be spreading where where you live? Where you work? In that personal space. I know many of you already believe these things deeply. That our lives do need to be embedded in a community and in a people. But we really need to keep working hard to to know our community and the people who live at the levels most intimate to us. It's from within that that we call people into the kingdom. Knowing people where we live and knowing the place where we live. That we, we ask them, we beg them to come into this kingdom. We work with them. You know, the gospel should ground us by the places we live are valuable to God. That he wants his kingdom to take shape here. We might need to repent. To turn from values from our, of our culture that, 
that devalue the local, that devalue local relationships. I know for my generation, just speaking personally from what I see, it's almost more exciting to be away for a weekend than it is to be at home for a weekend, to be in your neighborhood for a weekend. I think it starts with the college years when you're, you're able to be away as much as you'd like on weekends, when you're able to go visit family and those things. And then we, we continue that pattern. And before we know it, 10 years out of college, we still don't have a real place where we've grown roots, where we've committed ourselves. Jesus gives dignity to every place on earth. He gives dignity to the local. And he gives to the individuals who probably wouldn't matter to many other people. And it's with these people that he begins the kingdom. So how do we respond to the gospel? This message that the world is changing, that God is bringing his reign to this earth. Counterintuitive, isn't it? The way he's healing the earth isn't asking us by, by asking us to take up arms. It isn't to fight a physical battle. Instead, he's asking us to turn from ourselves to his son. To follow him, to commit to a community that worships him. You know, this, even more than physical battle, takes a lot of courage. We have to relinquish our pride. We have to commit ourselves to someone else who knows better than we do. We have to commit ourselves to a community that's allowed to call us out when we're in sin. To a community that sometimes needs to bear our burdens, that we need to let them bear our burdens. It takes courage. And then like him, we need to commit ourselves to the kingdom in the place that we live, work, and play. Have you responded to the gospel? Have you responded by committing yourself to Jesus and to his community? And have you responded by committing yourself to a place and a people where you can live out that kingdom and call other people into it? Let's pray.